0: Our nation and, and probably around the world. I'm gonna talk about the fight for souls and and what that fight for souls actually involves, what God expects from us. You know, there are several phrases, and you could, if you could, um, Mr. Soundman, we got a lot of overtone ringing, and that usually means just lower this a little bit, not too much, but a little. Praise God. Like I said, there's a special relationship with sound men and pastors. The sound man's number one job is to take the fall. Take the fall. When anything goes wrong, sound man's a guy that everybody goes, hey, man. And he's probably the one who's working hardest to, to make everything just right. So we love you, Hank. That's right, David. Praise God. So look, there are several phrases In the Bible, that God uses that describe our our assignment to go out into the world and represent Him. And I thought I'd just grab a few of the popular phrases that we're used to because I want to get a sense what does God expect? What does God expect us to do to represent Him out in the world? Um, Mark 16. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. And I want to emphasize, besides the gospel being preached, the word go. So we are obviously to go out into the world. Whatever the world is, we're to go out into it. Um, In Matthew 28, the end of the book of Matthew, again, there's that go then and make disciples of all nations, and he goes on to say, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and um, teaching them to observe all things that I've taught you. But again, go and in this time, he says, Make disciples. So, inferred within that is to go out and compel people to change their worldview and adopt God's worldview. Making a disciple means that that you're not just leading them to Jesus, but you are helping them to change from the culture of sin and corruption that previously guided their life. And unsaved people, it goes from one extent to to another degree of severity. But we're to make disciples, which means we're involved in changing people's minds. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And we know by that that he's referring to the preserving qualities. We should slow down the rot process. That's what salt does. It helps to preserve the culture of the world from totally rotting into decay. That's why if you don't have a freezer, like in the old days, you would salt your your perishables. Um, also in Matthew 5, same area, Jesus said, let your light shine before men. So let your light shine. Don't try to cover it up. Let it shine. No matter who likes it or no matter who doesn't like it, let your light shine. You're to leave it in God's hands, the impact that that light has on people who are in darkness. How many of you know that the light shining from your life is going to have, if you really go out, let it shine preach the gospel, attempt to make disciples, you are going to impact people. That light's going to bring an effect. In in the Gospel of John, the very first chapter, Jesus said, the light shined in the darkness. The darkness not only didn't comprehend it, but in another place, he said the darkness hated the light because it made their deeds known. And uh, finally, one other one, um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. I'm going to read this whole verse because I think... There's, there's some stuff in here we should really get a hold of. This is part of our going out into the world. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So what does that mean? That essentially means that your good deeds displayed prominently, intentionally before the godless, before the unsaved, should challenge and lead them to a conversion, to switch, to change, to leave the kingdom of darkness, enter the kingdom of light. That's what we're going for. If you as a Christian, or as a church, or as a pastor, or as an organization, are only interested in using the gospel to get people to like you, to like your church, and not to get them to leave the kingdom of darkness and enter the kingdom of light, then you're not representing the true gospel of the kingdom. Let me bring out one more. Here's the clincher. Everyone say clincher. Clinch. Here's the clincher. Don't get nervous, but, but here it is. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Herald and preach the word. Keep your sense of urgency, whether the opportunity seems to be favorable or unfavorable whether it's convenient or inconvenient, whether it's welcomed or unwelcomed, you as a preacher of the word are to show people in what way their lives are wrong and convince them, rebuking, correcting, warning, and urging and encouraging them being unflagging, inexhaustible in your patience and in your teaching. So summed up, let's put all this together, kind of distill it down. And when I distill those comments down, um, and I see them summed up to the fact that if we're preaching the kingdom of God, we must be impactful and challenging in the presence of the world. If we are not impacting, if there's not some kind of force against the, the high walls of darkness, that trap sinners behind them, then there's something wrong with our view and our relationship with the world. Uh, Let me talk for a few minutes about culture. How many of you feel like you have a pretty good idea of what the word culture means? Culture. Um, Well, here's a definition for you. Here's a definition of the word culture. The beliefs, laws, institution, and behavioral trends that guide and define a society. Let me say it one more time. The beliefs, the laws, institutions, and behavioral trends that guide and define a society. So as fishers of men, we are casting our nets into culture. That's where we're throwing our nets. We throw our nets into culture because that's where people live their beliefs, their laws, They come and are influenced by institutions and draw their behaviors from behavioral trends. So if our nets aren't being cast into culture, then we're not fishing for souls. And we're called to fight for souls. You want to know why? Culture doesn't want to give up those souls. Culture has teeth like a shark. Once you enter that shark's mouth, if he doesn't open his mouth, you're not getting out. Because those teeth are designed to hold you in. And the more you pull and tear, the more you're just simply setting yourself up to lose a limb. So culture, once culture has you and you're in the dark, the, the culture of darkness, you're not getting out. You're not getting out unless you can force the jaws of culture open. So we cast our nets into culture because that's what traps people. And you can sit in church and pray from now until the cows come home. You can confess 2 Chronicles 7.14. You can do all you want to do, beseech the Lord of the harvest, do all of those different things. But if you don't stand up and challenge culture, nobody's going to get saved. And I want to make that, I want to take the rest of my time this morning and emphasize that point. We are called to challenge culture, not to hide from it. We are not called to hide from culture. We're not called to approve culture. We're not called to ignore culture. We are called to pierce culture, to challenge culture. The beliefs, the laws, the institutions, and behavioral trends of society, the church should be penetrating and making its message known in those forums. Look, let's go back to the beginning. Consider our origin, where this all began, in the garden. When God made Adam in his image and likeness, male and female, created he them. What was God's order to Adam? Because that one order that was above all, that one directive from God, was the sin he committed that caused the collapse of the garden, the collapse of God's culture, and thrust the human race under a culture of darkness. What was that sin? Most people say, he ate the fruit. And so we just go through life thinking, look, if I don't eat the fruit, I'm good. I figure I'm in pretty good shape. But his sin was really, I think, a lot more specific than eating some kind of forbidden fruit. His sin... To understand it, you have to understand what God's order was. The Bible says in Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, using all its vast resources in the service of God and man, and have dominion. So who was Adam? He was God's representative on the earth, ordered by God to have dominion to spread, to multiply across the face of the earth and to exercise dominion. That means things don't get out of your control. Do you understand what dominion means? Somebody was saying earlier, I think Jesse was talking about the dominion of a father. Very apropos to this message this morning. That was the order. So what was Adam's sin? It was not doing that. When the serpent showed up, the accuser showed up and started talking to the man's wife, At that very moment, he should have slapped him down and thrown him out of the garden, but he didn't do it. He let him sit there and let him run his mouth. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? That was his domain and the devil had no business being there. He should have been thrown out. The sin had already happened when Adam stepped back into a position of passivity and didn't want to defy what the devil was saying didn't want to challenge what he was saying. Indeed, Eve passively said to the devil, well, God said, blah, 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 like she was ready to have a discussion with him. So the devil jumped right on that, and said, sure, yeah, let's, let's, ha- let's have a, what is it that they, that the devil likes to use today? Let's dialogue. This ain't no dialogue. Are you listening to this? This ain't a, God's Word, God's order, there are a lot of things you could dialogue about. There's nothing wrong with sitting down at the table of fellowship and talking about things, but some things are not up for debate. Some things are not available for dialogue. And the minute that they allowed God's order to be dialogued about, that's when the sin took place. You let the devil speak into your culture, and you didn't stop him. That was Adam's sin, and that is the sin of the church today. That is the sin of God's people today in the world that we have. God's culture, Adam's domain. So, culture today is what we have that's left of the garden. We have the remains of the garden. We have what's left. That is our culture. And as messed up and broken as it is, there is the divine echo of God's original order to Adam come down through the scriptures to us today. It's still there. In some adaptation, God's order to have dominion over the culture he places around us is with us today. One of them uh, shows up in Ephesians 5.11. It says... Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness, but it doesn't stop there. Most Christians would say, Well, praise God, you know, um, no, no big worry. Uh, we're not going to shut our church down because of monkeypox. If the government says we've got to shut our church down because monkeypox is, well, you know those monkeys, they just go wild and they're everywhere. So they come back and say, you got to shut. We're not shutting down because of monkey pies because we stay out of the Grecian bathhouses, so we don't have to shut down. There's a good argument, good solid case for saying, nope, sorry, it's not our culture. We don't worry about it. But the fact of the matter is that not only does God say, have no part, don't participate in the, Worthless deeds of evil and darkness. But he goes on to say, instead, reprove and expose them. That's where the church has trouble today. We don't want to dirty our hands with exposing, pointing out what is evil and what is wrong and what is wicked. For some reason, we think that God, simply by osmosis, is going to drift through the atmosphere And who's in the atmosphere? The prince of the power of the air. But but we think we're going to get on our knees and pray 2 Chronicles 7.14. Oh God, we repent for our nation, so heal our land. And then God's going to go out without his body. The head's going to go out, leave the body. The body's not going to be involved at all. And God's going to challenge the evil deeds that have brought judgment on the land. And he's going to heal the land. Without his body participating, that is just absolute insanity. That's crazy thinking. That's crazy thinking. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The orders to be involved in reconciliation, to confront darkness with the light, are given to the body of Christ. We don't hide out faces in the church carpet, praying, and then expect God to clean up the mess of our world and bring some sinners to Jesus? Are you listening to me this morning? Praise God. I might be a little excited about some of this this morning just because I feel it. You know, um, this, is, this is not rhetorical to me. It's, it's Holy Ghost passion. But don't misunderstand. I'm not angry. I'm just stirred up. <laughs> stirred up. Praise God. Just in case somebody doesn't understand. So the Bible says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful, worthless deeds of darkness, but rather reprove them. That's part of our assignment to the world. Where is the church doing that? Where is it happening? You know where it's happening? In the council room with the counselor and the one person, and it doesn't go any farther than that. That's It's it's not even in the pulpit anymore. We save those challenges to the works of darkness for private one-on-one conversations. Pastors don't even have that kind of conversation with their congregations anymore. Are you listening? And the poor people are suffering in bondage, and they can't get set free. We ought to be casting devils out. Who's casting devils out today? When's the last time you saw somebody say, in the name of Jesus, loose her and let her go? There's a spirit that's behind that oppression in your life. And if you'll submit your life to Jesus Christ, that power can be broken. The Lord loves you and wants to set you free. Where's that happening? It's not happening. We don't, want to, we don't want to accuse anybody of cohorting with the devil. You know, so we, the, the, the sin that the church avoids more than anything is to upset somebody. We don't want anyone upset. Praise the Lord. Now, you know I'm a jolly happy preacher. 95% of the time my messages are really all about our connection with God and enhancing and speaking to that connection and building it up and our fellowship with the Lord and being filled with the Holy Ghost, all that great stuff. Um, and I think that's, that's the meat and potatoes. That's primary. But when it comes to saving souls, there's reason, there's a, there's a purpose for us in the harvest, and there's a reason why we should be involved in the issues that bind the souls of sinners. Listen, you, you can't save people out of sins that they're, that they're still committed to. If you're not going to talk to people about their worldview that is corrupt and is the antithesis of the freedom Christ is calling them to, and you're not going to challenge that, you don't want to bring that up, you don't want to upset them, you don't want to offend them, God forbid they might, not, they might walk away and not listen. Listen, Jesus sent more crowds away than we've gathered he said, things to, he said things to the crowds, and they all walked away. Then he turns to his little handful of guys and says, you guys want to leave too? He invites them to go. They said, nope, nope, you've got the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere. So Jesus wasn't afraid of people misunderstanding him. We think today that somehow it's our job to keep talking until everyone understands what we're saying. Nonsense. If they don't get it, they don't get it. There's reasons why they don't get it. We think in our ego and pride we can make them understand what we're saying if we they'll just let us talk long enough. Sometimes you just have to say a thing and let it sit there, let it be what it is, because God's looking to see how they engage with the truth that you have just spoken, and you've just got to put it there and let it stand. Are you? Am I putting everybody to sleep this morning? How are we doing, Terry? We're, we with it? Okay, good. Praise God. You say you can't save people out of sins that they are still committed to. If we won't challenge the culture of lies with God's truth, how can people choose between the two? Amen. How do they make the choice? In, in Joshua, in the Old Testament, Joshua said, But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Because everything going on in our nation comes down to one of two choices. Choose Jesus Christ or choose Satan. All of the political arguments, all the social struggles, everything. Have you noticed how as these two piles are separating, our culture, our society is separating, you know, we all say, I hate division. But, you know, sometimes... When you're sleeping with the devil, you don't mind him going and moving into another house. That's right. Sometimes it's good to have a separation. Sometimes you've got to have a division. The Lord in the Old Testament was constantly rebuking the priests, using the prophets to get after them because they would not make two piles. This is right before God. This is not right before God. They wouldn't show a difference between common and sacred. Are you listening to me? And so Joshua said, if you don't want to serve the Lord, if that seems bad to you, then fine. Choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors? That uh, your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? I could hear him speaking today but as for me and my family. And when he said, we will serve the Lord, I guarantee you they knew what he meant about serving the Lord. He wasn't the least bit ambiguous about it. We're serving the Lord, which means we're not serving the God of the Amorites. In fact, we rebuke their religion because it is a religion of contempt and for the holiness of God. And it is a religion that enslaves people in ignorance and bondage to sin. So you're darn right we rebuke it. And if we don't, we are uh, in trouble with our God who said, have dominion over this culture that I have given you. In our culture today, all the areas of life that were once guided by the word of God have now fallen under the domain of the state and we are all controlled by politics today i don't know if you've been paying attention but education and science business and economics medicine health and even food production ethics and morality sex family and raising children all have been encircled by the regulation of the state and have become the business of politics. Every single one. Once, those were wide-open subjects that were just the, um, the, the, uh, the lifestyle of individuals, and the church had free reign to speak into those areas of life but they have now fallen all of the important activities of life, now obtained their definition and their approval from the government. And the influence of religion has been outlawed. You have to stay out. You can't comment on that. You can't speak on that. This inversion if you will, of our culture is the result of Satan successfully eliminating the inspiration of Scripture from all of our institutions by simply using this one lie, one very effective lie that our Constitution, that framed our nation, that has guided our nation, meant to guide and to secure our freedoms, that our Constitution was founded upon an order that the influence of the Bible must be kept out of government business. And this phrase, who here has not heard the phrase, the separation of church and state? And that phrase is used with a long, threatening finger by educational institutions, even by pastors, even by churches. And it is a completely false An erroneous concept. The idea of the separation between church and state was never a part of our Constitution or Bill of Rights. The phrase doesn't appear anywhere in the writings of our founders. In fact, the only place where it's even alluded to is a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to some Baptists up in New York State, comforting them and calming them because they were worried that the state was going to impose its own state religion and enforce a certain type of denomination, like the European nations that they had all fled to for liberty and freedom in America. And so they were worried about it. Thomas Jefferson said, no, 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 don't worry about it. We we have decided. So that idea, that concept that he expressed in that letter is the only place it shows up. It doesn't even show up in all of the journals, the thousands and thousands of pages of journals of conversation that went on between the framers of our Constitution when they debated and wrote out and hammered out the Constitution prayerfully and thoughtfully, and then the Bill of Rights. It doesn't show up in in all of the discussions. You know they took minutes, all the conversations they had, that led up to those little phrases in article one and article two and the first five articles of the the uh, the constitution and in the bill of rights do you know that they recorded all of that so we know what our founding fathers thought we don't have to guess what the intent of the constitution is it's there it's sitting in the library of congress people that have studied know that the men that wrote the constitution and sat down and worked out the bill of rights that well over 90% of them were practicing God-fearing Christians or preachers and pastors. A number of them went on to found prominent Bible colleges and Bible schools. In their discussions and conversations that framed our nation's guarantees of liberty and freedom, they were constantly quoting Scripture and talking about what is the intent of God's Word say. And it was from the Bible that they drew the articles of our Constitution and of our Bill of Rights. The separation of church and state is simply a phrase that modern usurpers began to grab onto decades ago and begin to infiltrate our education process and infiltrate our government through the agencies, and it first really had, I think, one of its first impacts in the year I was born in 1954 with the Johnson Amendment. When, that's right, LBJ uh, proposed the Johnson Amendment and it became part of the Articles of the uh, Internal Revenue Service that basically was quietly, without a vote, by the way, passed into law. It became part of the IRS code without ever being voted on. And that is that churches and pastors cannot endorse candidates or they will lose their tax exemption. Do you know how many thousands of preachers and pastors were so relieved after that? Because now they didn't have to go through the the difficult business of sorting out the issues of daily life that their people struggled with Instead, they could just deal with nice Sunday school lessons when people came to church. They didn't have to hammer out the vetting of candidates and the talking about the issues that their congregations had to vote on. They didn't have to deal with the things that captivated the sinners they were trying to reach. They took it as a restriction. We can't talk about politics. We can't uh, support candidates. And they draw that from what we call the, and I'm sorry, I know you didn't come for a a, a civics lesson, but I'm going to give you a little bit of one, because this is important for you to understand. And I'll tell you why it is, because without even thinking, many of you and many of those that are listening and will be viewing this video have restricted themselves from boldly standing up in public and proclaiming what the truth is against the beliefs of the lies that bind the souls and blind the minds of people that are trying to reach for Christ. They won't utter what God's Word says for fear that they'll offend them. Why? Because they are bound by this this idea of the separation of church and state. And, And the minute you open your mouth, out comes that finger of criticism and warning. Oh, you're, you're stepping over the line. What line? I don't see a line. There is no line. Not that the Constitution has laid down, not that the Bill of Rights has laid down. But they refer to one of the first articles of the of freedom of speech, And uh, in that article, it's called the separation clause. It's just a few words that have been so misused and and used inappropriately to silence and shut Christians down. And I believe it's time to rip that lie off and let Christians be free to obey what God's Word says. Let, Let me read the establishment clause to you. The establishment clause in that first article says... Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's the establishment clause. That clause is meant to, and it specifies, it protects church and non-church people, atheists or people who don't want to go to church. It protects all the citizens from the government imposing a state church, a state religion. That is the establishment clause. Congress shall make no law, no regulation, no law, respecting the establishment of a religion. But, and I went, I just thought, let's just do a, not a deep dive, but just, just jump onto Google. And let's see what Google, because Google is the voice of modern culture. So let's see what Google says about the establishment. Do you know that in the definition of the establishment clause in in Google, they say that it protects, just what I said, protects church and non-church people from the government imposing a state religion? But they go on and add the idea, and it forbids the government from showing favor to any religious ideas. That is a flat lie. That is a lie. That is a distortion right from the pit of hell. Because let me tell you something. Our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, are defined by our founders. In the very opening preambles, and the opening articles, and the, they specifically speak of the intent of the articles of the Bill of Rights and of our Constitution as securing the inalienable rights that come to us from God. And so the whole job of the Constitution of the Bill of Rights is to secure God's laws that give us rights. Those rights referred to as inalienable rights, the founders came right out in our opening documents and said, Man did not write these laws, and we are not writing them. Man didn't give them. Man can't take them away. We are writing a constitution and articles of a a bill of rights that secure the freedom of the rights that God has given us. Why would God give us rights to worship Him, to openly proclaim Him, only to turn around and restrict us in our governing of our societies from discussing them or talking about them. I mean, it's absolutely so backwards. The next time you hear a Christian say, I don't want to come to church and hear anything political. I don't want to come to church and hear about candidates. I don't want to come to church and hear what's wrong with this movement or this issue that's going in society. I come to church because I've listened to it for six days a week. I'm sick of it. I, I want to get away from it. I want to come in here. And you know what? That's not terrible. That's not terrible. I get that. I understand it. You know, one of the things that I do is I I really tap the brakes and limit how much I listen to. of what's, I just kind of keep my ear to the wall just to find out what great big changes are happening out there. But other than that, I keep my eyes on Jesus, keep my ears open in prayer to the Lord, and keep my eyes on his word. Keep built up, praise the Lord. So it doesn't bother me at all if I come into church and I hear somebody prophesying, somebody talking, somebody saying, listen, God is raising up a standard against this lie, against this enemy. Because I know that's about freeing people. That's about delivering people from the particular bondages that enslave sinners. So there are certain inalienable rights and the Bible is the foundation of our Constitution and Bill of Rights. As I said, our first our first politicians, the first politicians in America, the vast majority were preachers and Christians, active Church going, Bible believing Christians. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Just indulge me. Do Christians who don't want to hear commentary on political matters from the pulpit prefer that they be left in Satan's control? It's not a rhetorical question. Christians who say, I don't want to come to church and hear politics. Do they prefer and honestly believe they should be left under Satan's control? The devil should be free to deal with all that stuff. We just pray for that stuff. We don't want to talk about it, we don't want to hear about it. Shall we leave the business of sorting out morality and righteousness and vetting of candidates up to the devil? Is that what we should be doing? Does that make sense to anybody? I mean, does it really? I mean, if we are called to steward the harvest, why in the world do we not want to engage with the harvest? Why in the world do we not want to have any kind of influence over what's going on in the harvest field? Does that make sense to anybody? But I'm telling you, there are pastors who... I go to these meetings, I get around them and everything, and they say, oh, I couldn't say that. I couldn't endorse this candidate, or I couldn't say that. I've got Democrats in my church. Or, I've got, or the, you hear them say, you know, oh, I've, you know, I've got people that believe this. Well, who the heck's the pastor in this church? Does this church got a pastor? Are you listening to me? Come on, I know some of you are smiling. What the heck do they think a pastor is? Are you listening? Did you hear the scripture that I said Reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and doctrine, show people in what way their lives are wrong. how are you going to help people if you can't point out the trap that's got the hold of their leg? Instead you're just comforting them and speaking Bible verses to them while they remain trapped. I don't know. It's just it just gets to me. And it's always presented as some sort of an elevated view. Oh, you know, an elevated, more spiritual, Position. I, you know, I I just believe God and we just love people. Today, listen to me. Here this comes down to a challenge, comes down to a question. I'm gonna pose it to you. You gotta answer it for yourself. Today, Christians must decide if the fight for souls includes the fight to free our children from the perversion of LGBTQ indoctrination and transgender reassignments. Is that part of our fight for souls, or isn't it? You have to decide. Just take that issue. If you're going to fight for souls, the souls of children, the souls of our society, is that an issue that is shackling and binding the minds and destroying the lives of people. But you're gonna stand back with your arms folded and say, it's not my business, it's, it's not our, we don't express judgments. So how are you fighting for those souls? Tell me. I just love them. But you will not tell them what's wrong. You won't confront them. What about is the fight for souls Is it part of your battle? Is it part of your fight for souls? Does it include the fight to save our constitutional republic from atheistic fascism? Is that part of our fight for souls? Taking the freedoms derived from the word of God, regulating the life out of them and controlling every facet of life, replacing God with government, so that people run to government every time there's something in life that they need and demand that government do something. You know what happens? Society breaks up into the natural factions that people group around, and they use the hammer of government on one another. And whoever happens to have the largest constituency or is able to get the sympathies of politicians ends up winning. Does the fight for souls include the fight to drive communism and woke insurgency from the institutions of our nation? Does it? Does it? Do you, if you want to win the lost who are programmed and indoctrinated and can't even hear what you're saying because they have been taught that you are a deceived liar because you're a Christian or because of the color of your skin or because of the church you go to, the walls are up. They have been trained. Their mind has been, been jammed with a rod of deception and snapped off so that they cannot change their mind when you talk to them. But you think that that woke insurgency in our schools and colleges and universities, that that communism and Marxism that is taking over business in our institutions, that that's not the purview of the church. We shouldn't be talking about that from the pulpit. Why? It is the biggest enemy sitting on top of the harvest and and imprisoning souls. Souls that you're supposed to be bringing to Jesus, but you don't want to deal with it. You say we should be spiritual, but when Paul talks about being spiritual in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Right you are. We wrestle against powers and principalities that do what? Float through the air? No. They dominate and control souls. And they do it through talking, through ideas. But you don't want to engage those ideas. You don't want to talk about them. You want to bind the devil, but you want to let him keep talking. You don't want to challenge what he says. The Apostle Paul was whipped, beaten, stoned because he challenged city magistrates. He challenged people in authority. He challenged business leaders. He walked into cities and declared the word of God and cities that were given to idol worship and it didn't hold him back and he was tossed into jail plenty of time. And signs and wonders followed his preaching of the gospel. Why doesn't signs and wonders follow our preaching of the gospel? Because we won't confront the issues that bind and enslave sinners. We're afraid to. We're afraid they won't like us. My answer to this question, are these issues, are these fights that are going on today, are they part of our fight for souls and My answer is a resounding and defiant yes. Absolutely, it is part of our fight for souls. And I'll tell you why. (laughs) Because Satan has mounted these giant social and political issues, and he's driving them like a great combine through our harvest field. He's sitting on a giant combine reaping souls, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, up and down the harvest fields that we're supposed to be going out into, and we won't so much as even ask him to slow down. We won't challenge his thinking. That combine is just going. And universities are sucking these precious potential uh, uh, wheat in, from uh, that ought to be going into the Lord's garner and f- casting them right into... The outer darkness of Satan's domain. Is it all right to say things like this in church? Yeah. I mean, should, should we be thinking like this? I don't know. I think we should. So I'm the pastor, so I'm going to get up and talk like this. Praise the Lord. Do we do we pray for the harvest? Do we do we pray for the harvest? But then retreat from its fields and allow Satan to control them. What what sense? What, where what universe does that make sense in? Why are you praying for the harvest? But you won't won't get up in church and talk about what's going on in the harvest. When the state and the media, the state, let me say, and its media, tell us to stay behind our church barriers, why do we passively comply and allow Satan to have access to pervert and destroy the minds that we are called to reach? When you preach to somebody, you've got to talk to their mind. You've got to talk to their heart. You've got to talk to the place in their life where the sin that's shackling them resides. Those are the strongholds that bind, corrupt, and enslave people. And you just want to go up to them and say, Jesus loves you. And expect those shackles to come flying off. Why isn't that happening? You want to sing praise songs, sing those shackles. I mean, I love it when that happens. It's pretty amazing. But the business of fighting for souls is a rough. It's a fight, and it could be a, it could be a tough business. No wonder the Bible says, "He that winneth souls is wise." It's they're wise. Hallelujah. So when 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 the state and its media Threaten us and tell us you better stay behind that line. You stay within your church barrier. Don't you come out here and start meddling in the harvest. Hey, that's our harvest. That's what's left of the garden. That's our responsibility. It's not yours. You're a usurper. You have no business telling us to stay out of the culture of our society today. Am I getting through to anybody this morning? And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. It's because we have stood idly by, and we've permitted the devil, we've permitted Satan, to drag our entire culture into the one place that gives him complete power and control over our entire society. It's called the House of Politics. Satan simply makes all of his lying social controls, he simply makes all of them political issues. They're now under the purview of politics. And so the devil knows that by doing that, automatically pastors and Christians everywhere will not touch those issues. They'll leave them alone because it's politics and we don't talk about politics. And so I didn't come to church to hear about politics. Then you obviously didn't come to church to really bind and learn how to bind the power of Satan. Challenge the shackles that blind the eyes and bind the minds of the lost. You know, until you upset people, they're not going to think about what you say. (laughs) You say, well, Pastor, I think you're using that on us this morning. Not deliberately, but, you know, if... If it rubs the cat's fur the wrong way, you know what to do? Turn the cat around. Hallelujah. Look, he, all you have to do, all the devil has to do is make every issue of life a political issue. Government has reached now into every issue. You name me one area of life that the, that the government, the state, does not now regulate and control and lay down policies about who can say what about what goes on, with consequences, with consequences. You go up against, you, you, you uh, step out of your lane to comment about things that are going on that Satan's doing in the world today, and you risk being canceled. Is our preaching really meant Is it really meant, is this really what Christians who say, I I don't want to come to church and hear anything political. Is our preaching really meant to be nothing more than elevator music on our way to heaven? Is that what the job of preaching is? Or or shouldn't it rather be a battle cry instead of elevator music to stop the elevator and jump out into the harvest? Jesus will take care of getting us to heaven. I don't think it's, I don't think our churches should have messages that are elevator music. They should be a battle cry. Hallelujah. Come on. Am I talking to anybody, Danny? You know what I'm talking about? Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. If we believe that all seats of authority, the mayor, uh, city council, state legislators, federal legislators, that all seats of authority, even regulatory seats that are appointed by people who were elected, and on and on and on. If we believe that all seats of authority and influence belong to God, then why don't we believe that what they do with that authority isn't the business of the church? Do you believe that all authority belongs to God? I hear you. I hear a saying all the time, if you really believe it, then why don't you believe that it's your business to know what they do with that authority? And that means you need to be an educated voter. In fact, it means you need to find out who is standing for righteousness, who is going to serve God, who is going to move forward the principles of the kingdom of God, and more importantly, who's being used to the devil? to further the darkness and get those rascals out. Work against them. I'm telling Christians, work against them. Don't sit there and do nothing and just pray. If there's a rascal out there who's pushing sexual reassignment surgeries, I just heard a thing this past week, I think it was a church in Boston, I probably shouldn't say that because maybe it wasn't, somewhere up north of, church was uh, being protested against because they were supporting sexual reassignment surgery for three-year-olds. Three-year-olds. Jesse, do you know what I'm talking about? You've got six kids, five or six kids, right? you willing to toss them to the God of Molech? Any of, them, any of them you don't like very much? You think maybe they're not quite right? We need to mutilate their, their organs and change them? Or put them on some kind of chemical uh, reassignment. So if you believe that's wrong, you ought to be screaming to the top of your lungs about it. You should be standing up publicly in the the square and shouting down the people that believe in it. Now I am being rhetorical. Because I'm not saying run around screaming with your hair on fire. You want to be listened to. So learn how to be articulate. Just just practice common sense. Just simple common sense. Just ask some common sense questions. And then when it's appropriate, just say, no, I don't believe that's right. And you know what? I think Christians need to grow a backbone instead of a wishbone. We like to do a lot of wishing in Jesus' name. But how about some standing? (laughs) Hallelujah. Trade in that wishbone for a backbone and stand up and be willing to say, that is demonic. You know, I I, uh, I started watching this uh, news um, show on TV. I quit. I, well, I totally quit watching Fox News, but but I started watching Newsmax. How many of you watch Newsmax? Newsmax is awesome. It's uh, did you know they talk? Not only are half the people or more on there they're, they're saved. They openly preach the go- preach the gospel, talk about Jesus, and I'm talking about the. The uh, news commentators, they talk about the devil and demons. They call things that are going on in our society today that are evil, they call them demonic. Newscasters, imagine turning on CNN or Fox News and have them say, you know what, that's of the devil. Yeah, I mean, wow. That is absolutely awesome. And let me tell you what, they take criticism and they are exploding, exploding. People want to hear the truth. The devil wants nothing more than, than to be camouflaged by a bunch of, of weak, uh, spineless Christians who don't want to talk about the devil, don't want to talk about what the devil's doing, don't want, look, I don't like going around talking about the devil either, but when it's the devil, you need to stop saying, well, you know, <clears throat> they need counseling. Counseling's not going to help them. If it's demonic, you've got to break that power over their life, and you can't do it without Truth. If you're not going to oppose the lie with truth, then what are you? Are you a Christian? So, <laughs> do, you think, do you think that all the authorities that God cares about in the kingdom of God, do you think there's only five seats of authority in the kingdom of God? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. If you listen to a lot of Christians, they live in the interior of the church. They live in a churchianity mentality. And you listen to them. They think that the entire kingdom of God is run by either one of those apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. But did you know that Paul, when he taught in Ephesians 4 about the fivefold ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, he said they were appointed to I'll read it to you right here. They were appointed, their responsibility, quote, direct quote, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work. That means to go serve on the school board. That means to go take a position in the city council. That means to get involved and use your authority as a citizen. And speak for righteousness. The job of the apostle, prophet, and van, uh, pastor, and teacher are not to sit there and play elevator music for you while you're on your way to heaven. Their job is to keep you stirred up, edified, focused, and equipped to go out and stand for the light. Does that make sense? But we've stripped them from that authority and responsibility. No wonder we have a church that's ill equipped. Some churches, Thousands of people, but they cannot have an impact on their local government because they won't challenge anything. If we believe that we are called to the harvest field as laborers, what does God say about the labor that we should be performing? If we're praying, God said me, I want to be a laborer in the harvest. What labor? What labor are you going to do? Here's what the Bible says at least one of the definitions of our labor in the harvest field. 2 Corinthians 5, 3-5, listen to this. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. Notice the inference, we do wage war. We just don't do it like the humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning. TO DESTROY FALSE ARGUMENTS. WE DESTROY EVERY PROUD OBSTACLE THAT KEEPS PEOPLE FROM KNOWING GOD. EVERYTHING I'VE BEEN SAYING THIS MORNING, THERE IT IS. PAUL WRITES TO THE CORINTHIANS, GOD HAS GIVEN US MIGHTY WEAPONS CALLED TRUTH. EVERYTHING THAT THEY ARE DOING IN SOCIETY TO STEAL OUR FREEDOM AND BRING US UNDER BONDAGE TO SECULARISM, HUMANISM, AND EVERY OTHER KIND OF ISM that is satanic and in rebellion to God, every one of them are dressed in the Word of God. The weapons are right here, right here. But we don't want our pastors getting up and talking about that stuff. And yet it says, we must destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. How are you going to capture, you talk to somebody about Jesus, you tell them Jesus loves you, and they go, wow, you know, Jesus, really? That white supremacist God, that European God that, that, uh, that destroyed the native people and enslaved uh, Africans and, and that, that God that, that inspires people to go to, and all the criticisms, all the stuff they've had their heads pumped with, and you're just sitting there listening and smiling, you need to be ready and be able to knock down those thoughts with the truth of God's word, lovingly, calmly, in love. Don't get offended. Don't get angry. But talk and just say, let me tell you what the truth says. This is what the truth says. Oh, you mean you're disputing that? Oh, yeah. Darn right I'm disputing because it's a lie. Oh, what do you mean? Are you calling me a liar? No, but, but you believe a lie. I'm telling you, God wants to set you free. Your soul, your mind, your thoughts are trapped And God wants to free you. Let me show you the truth. Let me tell you what the truth is. They can choose whether they believe it or not. You see, our pride gets involved. We think it's our job to win the argument. We think it's our job to win the debate. It's our job to leave with them liking us. That is not your job. Your job is to give them enough truth that they can act upon it. Enough truth that the Holy Ghost can speak to them and convict them. I was a hardcore existentialist atheist before I became a Christian. I couldn't tell you why I hated Christ. I didn't believe he existed, but I hated what I didn't believe existed. How did I get saved? I heard somebody tell me about Jesus. I'd never opened a Bible once in my life. I'd never gone into a Bible-speaking church, Bible-preaching church, ever once. I didn't know anything about Jesus, yet I had some young people come up to me on the beach, and say so you need to be born again, God loves you, and, you know, the various things, I thought, it was like a dog going, rawr, rawr, rawr. I didn't understand, whatever, they were, I couldn't understand anything they were saying, but they sowed that word in there, and they challenged what I was believing, and what I, the way I was living, and when I left, I didn't give them any indication that I liked them, or thought that they were cool, or anything, and frankly, they could care less, They had done their job. I went away, and over the next couple of months, that word grew and wrestled with my soul. And one night, boom, I got saved alone in my bedroom. Met this Jesus. Hallelujah. We need to let God do his work, but we need to fight for souls. I need to wrap this up. That's another thing we need to do. Um, Christians must once again risk their reputations their fortunes, and their lives to take the word of truth outside these walls of the church and do exactly what it says in 2 Corinthians. Knock down the strongholds of human reasoning, destroy false arguments, and destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. And we need to risk ourselves to go and do that. That's what the first church did. And let me tell you that God's almighty weapons that he says they've been given to you to do that. Those weapons haven't caught fire and become empowered in church because we're using them to cut up our chicken with. You've got to use it against lies and against darkness. You start using the Word of God against real darkness instead of just cutting up your chicken with it. I'm talking about the sword of the Spirit now. And you'll see the Holy Ghost empower it. You'll see the Holy Ghost moving upon you. You'll see the power of God moving. Praise God. Can you say amen? amen? The sword of the Spirit will come alive with the power of the Holy Spirit when it's raised against the lies of Satan in the fight for souls. And that is all I have to say about that. Praise the Lord.